Tinara tato katoa, no mai kitera a kanohi or kopapa korangi up or down. Conversations about how we think about the costs of climate change. We welcome you now to the recordings from the in-person symposium for Kopapa Korangi, held at Te Papa Tongarewa in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our host for the day is Marnie Dunlop. In this episode, panellists David Hall, Lydia Tikanawa, John Reid and Joe Kelly discuss funding and financing the future, the current barriers to investment in climate adaptation and examples of what is working well. So leading us towards the end of the day, um, our second panel is on funding and financing the future. And yes, there is a difference, as we've been finding out, between these two mechanisms. Now, we want to explore how we might overcome the current barriers to investment in and funding for climate adaptation. If we know and acknowledge that the costs, as we've been unpacking, of climate change include environmental, human, social, cultural, as well as more concrete infrastructure or financial costs, what innovative solutions are there to respond equitably and effectively? So in this panel, we bring together possibilities and provocations that interrogate interrogate government policy levers, alternative business strategies, and private sector mobilisation. Now, we're very lucky to have these four powerhouses on the stage with us today, and I will introduce them very briefly, but as I've said, uh, there's more robust bios on our webpage. I'll start with Ridia. Uh, Ridia Tekanoa is a partner at KPMG, where she works with clients to realise their aspirations, or Māori clients in particular, in the pursuit of the perfect balance between people, planet and putia. No my idea. John Reid is a problem solver of the first degree, a specialist in Indigenous economic development. And John leads multiple national research programmes that bring together science, industry and Indigenous communities to address sustainability for our oceans, freshwater, land and biodiversity. Goodness me, no my John, kia ora. Joe Kelly is Chief Executive of Toitsu Tahua, the Centre for Sustainable Finance, both supporting and driving business to make significant transformations in the way that they operate. And David, David Hall is Climate Policy Director at Toha, which we think is proving to be a bit of a game changer. Uh, his report from 2022, Adaptation Finance Risks and Opportunities for Aotearoa New Zealand, uh, has done some pretty amazing things. Anyway, you guys are all amazing. It's an honour and a privilege to have you here. Um, so let's get started. Is the lapel on, bro? Me. Oh, wait. oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Oh, are we all good? Are we all around last song? Okay, so some, like I said before, some pretty hearty issues that we touched on in the, t- the tables um, have really gone in to unpack these. I want to start with you, David. <laughs> Could you please characterise um, the current landscape of climate adaptation funding and, and finan- financing, yeah? Uh, inadequate, in a word. Um, very inadequate in two words. That's <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there's two streams to it. Um, there's the money that we're already spending and whether that is aligned towards climate adaptation. So the budget yesterday announced um, 71 billion in infrastructure investment over five years, about 14 billion a year. And there's a question, you know, is that going towards infrastructure, which is resilient or unresilient in itself, whether it's exposed to climate impacts or not, whether it is going to um, improve adaptation in the surrounding area or whether the this infrastructure is itself maladaptive. Um, Elan talked earlier about uh, stock banks in, 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 in Westport as a, as a possible, you know, as an example. And I've done analysis on the, on the COVID spending and as well, you know, a lot of that went into um, maladaptive infrastructure as well. And even on the radio this yesterday morning, there was um, a report from Wakakotahi that, you know, they'd basically done no resilience planning in any of the investments and it was something that they were shifting towards. So, so that's the first part of it is, you know, we need to make sure what we are already spending is, is going to the right place. And then the second part of it is that, you know, there's a lot more new spending we need to do on top of that. Um, you know, the infrastructure uh, deficit is being estimated at about 210 billion. So that's, um, you know, three times more 
uh, than, than what's mentioned in the budget. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's other expenditure we need to do as well. We need to put money into R&D for adaptive technologies like, you know, drought-resistant crops or um, precision irrigation. We also need money in um, repairing the whenua. Um, I'm working a bit out on the East Coast at the moment and there's these questions, how do we um, restore Ngahiri to some of those upper catchments um, in order to make them more resilient to the climate impacts that we've been seeing? How do we also restore uh, wetlands in the lower catchments um, and, and riparian margins and so on to enhance the resilience of those catchments? And so, um, you know, government needs to... Um, fund a lot of that because a lot of it is public goods but government can't fund all of it and that probably shouldn't fund all of it either because um, businesses and so on have a responsibility i think to pay for some of that as well um, whether that's for investing in their own uh, risk management through their value chains and supply chains in line with um, what mark baker jones was talking about and responding to their climate risk um, management um, and, you know, some businesses have also been involved in maladaptive practices and they should probably be paying to clean up some of the messes that they've made. And that's certainly something which came out of the land use inquiry where the forestry companies should be paying for some of the repair um, that, that is needed out there. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Well, you've already kind of addressed this, this uh, follow-up question on that of, you know, what are the barriers in terms of, um, you know, investing and funding climate adaptation for, for for the government in particular. But what are the, some of the other innovative, especially when it comes to inequities, what are the other innovative ways in which we can overcome those particular barriers of how it is, how adaptation is funded? Yeah, I, innovation can play a role, but a lot of it is just targeting um, what we already spend and what we could spend in better ways. And especially, I think, uh, when it comes to public funding, the priority should be for our most disadvantaged communities and those who are going to benefit most from um, from that in infrastructure and who don't have recourse to other sorts of um, risk management, you know, like like risk transfer um, through insurance or um, you know, in investing in the assets that they have and enhancing that resilience. That that sort of investment is not available and um, access to finance is not available to many communities to the same extent as others and so you know where public money is best spent is is exactly to those communities but it doesn't need to be innovative and it can be through a number of existing um, policy tools um, even in the social policy space I mean you know we make a mistake if we think that everything needs to be labeled specifically as adaptation a lot of different sorts of policy uh, including social policy, can enhance the resilience of communities. Lydia, I'll just come to you. Oh, sorry. As... Oh. oh, sorry. Let's look off the phone. Yeah. Yeah, no. I don't have my technical difficulties. Are we good now? <laughs> sorry, just as I was saying, um, just coming to you, Lydia, on that, drawing from your particular experiences around... Um, you know, Indigenous investing and decision-making. What insights can you give us for the funding and financing climate adaptation with um, and some of the key challenges that your clients are facing in the area? Um, I think there's more challenges to conquer than there are sort of examples and solutions out there, but that's that's the beauty that we, we can enter into that discovery space. I think when I come back to us, our values are really well matched um, to this particular challenge and specifically like our intergenerational view, um, our connectedness and understanding the connection between the different pieces. We don't operate in silos. And the third one is we understand the importance of balancing off this sort of financial piece with um, you know everything else, and you know we always label social, environmental, economic. I don't like it, but I don't have another another version. Um, <clears throat> having that values base is awesome, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those decisions are any easier for us because we've got to remember that our decision makers have come through a system, and some of them have been conditioned by a system which is the system that has generated this problem in the first place. So. 
um, if we, we've got to sort of go back to the mind shift, which is the hardest thing to do. You can pay for things, you can improve a process or a system, but actually the way we think about it determines how that system is shaped in the first place. So those power brokers, that's where we really need to focus on first of all. Um, in some of those discussions, a lot of it's around the framing. So um, if we talk about whether it's adaptation or anything else, it's sort of, oh, it's a cost. But if we reframe it from being a cost to being the protection of revenue, so sort of staying in this businessy realm, um, you know, whether it's revenue protection, whether it's the cost versus us existing forever, um, whether it's a cost and saying actually this is about our social license to carry on as well, there's a reframing to go on beyond the cost piece. Um, I think one of the challenges, and this sort of plays into, um, I guess, the inertia that we might experience, and that is robust long-term data that is consistent over a wide area. And people always go back to, but we haven't got the data, we haven't got the data. And that's where your true leadership has to come through because any decision um, that leaders make these days, it's not perfect, it is imperfect, but we still kind of find times to go, oh, we haven't got the data to justify not moving or, or not taking that perceived risk. Um, and then if I come back to sort of that Māori value set, you kind of go, I think those are what we need embedded in a system. Um, but if you look at the financial system, it's not necessarily one that is well-placed to value or understand those values, value or understand the mindset, and so they could well be missing out on a significant opportunity to um, bring different views and thoughts to this particular challenge ahead of us. And there could be some real gold in there, but you've got to open up to it and not to Māori just being participants in the conversation. They actually have to lead it because they've got to show people where to go. You can't tell someone who doesn't know where to go to take you there. So I think we've got to rebalance this decision-making seat place. It's not about being at the table. It's about leading the table and showing them where it is. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I need to finish up and draw on a decent example. So um, you've got an outfit like Tahito, so Māori-led investment fund. And so you have a look at their portfolio and you won't find fossil fuels in there. So they're making those values-based decisions and their performance is doing better than the benchmark that they line up against. So I think we just probably have to amplify some of the good opportunities, um, examples, sorry, that are out there. So sure. That brings me to you, to you, John, about, you know, what can we learn from the, the, like that particular example from Māori investment and the economic practices to support us in this particular space? Because your work directly relates uh, to these particular parts. And, and could you just talk us through a bit of your research and, and how it does bear on, um, on climate adaptation? So I, I think I'll start by um, talking a little bit about what's happening in the farming sector mm. and then related to Māori after that. But um, so, of course, the farming sector is is probably one of New Zealand's areas of, of, of where they're most exposed in terms of uh, climate change adaptation. It's also the area that most affects us from the extreme events from climate change, for example, uh, flooding, uh, drought, these sort of issues. So flooding from, uh, you know, uh, upper catchments being uh, denuded over time. And so... Uh, the farming sector is pretty central to New Zealand's adaptation, that and alongside the transport sector, sort of key areas. But what you're seeing is, despite quite a lot of negative media attention, a lot of positive things happening in the farming sector with groups and networks of regenerative farmers uh, working together to explore alternative pathways and ways of operating. And where that's being led um, principally is amongst Māori, Māori farming entities uh, are leading a lot of this, uh, a lot of the science and investigation um, into this area, and what you have happening is is uh, things like with regenerative farming, where they're using diverse pasture species and so on, where uh, carbon's being sequestered into soil, um, very low levels of nutrients um, needing to be placed on pasture, 
um, at the same time, and therefore carbon footprints falling for those farms, sequestering more carbon, also on-farm uh, restoration of wetlands and of forest areas and riparian planting. So you're getting a vision starting to form within parts of the farming sector of how the entire agricultural sector can transform. And we're seeing that, for example, Naitau converting a large portion of Naitau farms to regenerative farming methods, um, also doing landscape scale planning um, amongst iwi, uh, working with scientists on that front to see what's happening, uh, anticipating what's going to happen with future extreme events, um, you know, flooding and drought extremities, and how we can reshape landscapes um, by having mountains to the sea corridors of of forests integrated with wetlands and estuaries and duneland um, areas. So it's almost like a full-scale uh, approach where you're starting to um, re reconstruct the uh, landscape to enable us to be able to adapt to climate change in terms of the effects on communities and built environment, but also um, uh, how you can also you know generate all these reciprocal benefits from it. And as part of that, we're seeing uh, at the same time internationally financial capital wanting to head in directions where it can support, um, you know, this type of work to happen. And one of the biggest issues we face is not having really good data and information of, of, of being able to say, we've planted this here or we've restored a wetland here and this is what the effects of that is. This is how much carbon it sequesters or this is how much... Um, uh, and this is the impact it's having on society, the positive impact. So that's the other area from my end too, is uh, exploring the uh, the environmental monitoring side. So uh, hopefully that gives you... Yeah, that. no, incredible. Yeah. And can you, can you speak more to, to that around um, the, the Tauotutu? Yeah, so yeah, so Tauotutu is a, a Māori principle and it used to underpin Māori trade. Um, so it's based on the idea of... Um, you know, the idea of sharing. So if you're sharing something with someone else, there is um, sort of a, a, an expectation in time something will be shared back with you, but potentially with a little bit more than you gave initially. So this idea of it binds communities together through the process of gifting and return. But the same thing not only applies between relationships between people and between communities and societies or countries, the same thing also applies with the relationship to the whenua or... Um, if you're investing in the land uh, and caring for it in that sense, you, something comes back to you in a, in a cycle, in a reciprocal mm. cycle. So that's kind of the underpinning philosophy um, and thinking that not only runs through economics, but also through environmental human relationships. Mm. Yeah, and when, when we think about, when we're talking about obviously cost and, and finance and those sorts of things, your sustainable finance is obviously a very key component in a society where nature and, and communities uh, thrive, um, you know, as an example of what uh, John's just outlined as well. So, Joe, what is sustainable finance more generally and, and how can it become more prevalent? And, and how do you think in terms of the in the, the space of climate adaptation um, does that or how that can improve? Yeah, sure. Um, oh. oh, I'll just do it. Oh, yeah, there we go. go. Can you hear me? Is that better? Go, is that better? That's better, yeah, yeah. I'll just talk like this. <laughs> um, I guess to start with, maybe it's useful to talk about finance before you put the sustainable part on the front. Um, and this can get quite philosophical, but... but Go. <laughs> finance is an enabler for things to happen in the real economy, right? And so there are sort of lots of ways of thinking about the role of money or the role of, of capital in society and and... One of them, there is a school of thought, is that to your point about kind of exchange, it's it's really just a source of energy that can be utilised to realise potential, be that sort of individual or societal potential. That's one school of thought. There are <laughs> there are others, of course. Um, and in terms of sustainable finance, so this sort of exists at multiple levels internationally. Sustainable finance is, is uh, tends to be defined as a process of considering environmental, social, or governance factors into financial decision-making. Um, it aims specifically, though, to promote, to promote sustainable economic development 
has a bit of a bent toward growth. So, you know, there's another conversation that I'm sure there are people in the room around degrowth. Um, uh, but it also aims to promote long-term financial system resilience and stability. And it covers all types of activities from, you know, lending to investment to insurance. Um, so ESG is the thing that we usually hear about that most people are familiar with. You can think of ESG as the factors that are being considered in sustainable finance. And then more recently, we've become much more comfortable and familiar with the language of transition. So now we start to talk about transition finance, which is again kind of a subset of um essentially providing finance to help companies move from less to more sustainable models. Um, so I think, what was the second part of the question? How can we, going, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess I should talk about the centre's perspective on all of this. So the centre for sustainable finance is only 18 months old, uh, old but our um, purpose is to accelerate a financial system by 2030, so we're time bound, that is more equitable, inclusive, and sustainable. And so that covers off, we have a roadmap, it covers off many, many different facets of the system, which um, are things like prudential regulation and definitions and disclosures and director's duties. And so we sort of sit back, we don't sit back, but we take a view of the whole system as opposed to just the development of a marketplace for sustainable finance products. Yeah. Whoa, okay. <laughs> um, but just sorry, I will keep, I'll just stay with you, Joe, for a little bit because I sure. did want to talk about your other kind of porti that you wear. So you're the director of B Lab, we just want to get all these Bs right. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm going to So you're the director of B Lab Australia and New Zealand, which is that the non profit network that yeah. certifies and supports the movement of B Corps exactly. globally. Okay. Yeah. So not to be confused with the B team, obviously, which yeah. was the global leadership organization that you exactly. did help establish back in 2011. Yeah. Lots of Bs. Sorry, any Bs. Um, need some, I don't know, maybe some like brand identity reviews. No. <laughs> yeah. There is no plan, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. you all know that by now. Um, so the B Corps or businesses that have achieved um, B Corp certification as some of the leaders in redefining our culture of accountability in business, right? So can you talk us through what B Corp is all about um, and how this type of collaboration can can impact uh, these business practices, especially the ones that you've just touched on? Yeah, sure. So B Corp certification is basically a certification or a trust mark that companies can pursue and um, it's a very rigorous and lengthy certification process, but essentially companies reach a certain threshold of, of doing more good or doing less bad across workers, community, customers, planet and governance. And the B Corp movement is about, is about 10 years old. It started in the US um, where back then was pretty binary either you could be a non-profit or a for-profit organization and so it started as a movement of people who were saying the purpose of business should actually be able to be legally to drive benefits to society and then um, with that came kind of a movement in the US to develop legis a legislative framework that supports benefit corporations and out of that some of those businesses really wanted to be able to identify themselves as businesses that drive benefit. And so they started to develop this certification process. And the process sort of looks at two, the business in two ways. It looks at how the business is doing things impactfully. So what is the business performance across these different criteria? And, but more importantly, I think, how the business is doing impactful things. So what is its purpose? What is its governance? What is its constitution? What is it locked in to the mission of the business to distinguish it from a business that sort of, you know, doesn't have that purpose component? Um, so the other interesting thing about B Corps is they sign up to a declaration of interdependence, which is basically a way of saying... We rely on the planet, we rely on our customers, and we also rely on each other. And what we hear consistently from B Corps is that regardless of how you come to wanting the B, and, and you know, there's no judgment on the range of reasons why you might pursue that as a business, once you go through the process, it's actually the process that has the value, not 
the B, not the trust mark. And that's because it, it's so rigorous that it drives a level of understanding in the business that you don't get unless you pay attention and you set goals for yourself and you decide to change. And so the businesses tend to see really high engagement with staff, really high engagement with customers and good kind of, you know, relationships. And, um, and then they will also tell you that quite often if you're an export company, for example, the B won't get you the deal with, I don't know, Tesco, but it'll get you the meeting, right? And so there's obviously just just standard business benefits as well. What is the uptake though in Australia and New Zealand? Oh, uh, it's been exponential over the last couple of years. I actually don't know the, the number at the moment. It's something like 50 in New Zealand. Sorry. No, 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 sorry, sorry. Just basically, yeah, zero, no way. It's actually pretty high. <laughs> and, it's, and it's relatively higher in Australia and in Aotearoa, New Zealand than it is in mm. other parts of the world. But it's also... You know, B-Lab's a non-profit, it has a really full certification pipeline and it's quite slow. So for all anyone in the room who's thinking about it, if you are thinking about becoming a B Corp, just get the thing in now and we'll see you in, eight, we'll see you in 18 months or so. <laughs> yeah. Betty, I want to get your kind of thoughts on that because... You know, a lot of what is kind of you know interesting what B Corps are is around you know that the, the accountability and then the contribution to our society, which is essentially how a Māori framework, many of our Māori frameworks actually function and, and can be applied. Um, do you see like that similar kind of accountability that is entrenched in the in the clients in which you're working with? No, I I think we're still kind of stuck in the annual reporting and all of the mm. things that we have to do. But there's, you know, some great examples. Um, um, if you take a look at their annual report, you'll have a look at what they've tried to do. That hasn't been as a result of, um, you know, standards and the need to disclose forced upon them. It's something that they've done themselves. So I think you're always going to have good examples, but on the whole, we are not there. Having said that, I remember about five or six years ago, I said to my husband, you guys are the biggest farm. You need to look at whether you go for something like a B Corp certification um, because being Indigenous, um, B Corp certification, exporting, you know, you start to layer on these attributes that might be what helps them to um, lower the intensity of production, increase the value of production, and that's, that's, a, that's a positive thing. It's not the end of the game. I see that as a step along the transition, but... Um, I do like the philosophy of B Corp. I understand it's quite a rigorous process. <laughs> when you talk about, sorry, when, sorry, I just want to, when you say rigorous, like how rigorous are we talking? Um, I'm sure that is what you're answering. Yeah, so it's complex. Uh, well, it's complex. So um, there's a there's a 200 possible points in a scoring system, and there's sort of an algorithmic way of assessing companies that they have to get a certain number of points, and then they get basically audited by a standards assessor. Who will go in and say you are, you know, this is or isn't sort of sufficient. So, it's rigorous in that um, you have to put the work in in order to get the certification. But I kind of agree. It's not like even at the at the um, global level of the B Corp network, the purpose is to change business, is to change the culture and practice of business, and to change what society expects from business and so certification is very much a means to achieve that theory of change it's not the end game and it's not about businesses it is to some degree about more businesses becoming b corps but it's actually more about just being more like the companies that are really well managed and that really understand their impacts and that are pursuing something purposeful Mm. Right. So the certification is just a means to that end. Yeah. Mm. Which is probably where it's more aligned sort of to a, an indigenous, indigenous value set than in the certification itself. Yeah. John, do you want to weigh in here? And I'm here. You've written a lot about the need for that kind of the, the, ra the, the radical transparency for sustainability indicators. So there's a whole range of new technologies coming on board at the moment. Um, mostly through, you know, new satellite technologies, uh, drone technologies, the development of artificial intelligence as well, means that we're able to much better understand what's happening um, in terms of, it might be carbon emissions, but they're related to nutrient emissions and other things from 
from our uh, primary industries, which give us can give us very, very detailed information of what's happening right down to the farm level, like methane sats going up soon. It'll show you the methane coming off um, off farms, that sort of thing. So what it means is that the footprint, the environmental footprint of different businesses, particularly on the land, whether it's forestry, far, farming in New Zealand context, will be become transparent. And certainly over the next five to 10 years, it'll, it will almost certainly be very transparent, which means that if you if you've got a poor environmental footprint, it's going to be known, um, which raises a whole question of, of entering an area of this radical transparency where people will know the footprint of these businesses. But it and it's, has a, has a, some implications, and I think the first implication is um, uh, one is it, and it's uh, a positive implication is that you can give positive give feedback constantly on what you're doing and how to improve. I think that's the sort of the the positive end. I suppose the negative end is is privacy. So <laughs> there's the there's an issue around privacy and what happens, uh, you know, with your own uh, information and everybody knowing what's going on uh, with a particular organisation. But um, and what that means to accountability to society more broadly. So yeah, um, interesting area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, but it does fill the big some of the big data gaps we have currently. You can't really very very difficult to assess. Um, whether um, somebody is uh, sustainable from a climate change perspective or not. Yeah, you've all mentioned data quite um, you know, prominently. How do we fill that gap? Can we fill that gap? Uh, Just John's question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I think we're getting there. I mean, I know uh, Naitau Farms, there's something like $2.5 million just invested just in monitoring. For, for the farms there, so that's the uh, uh, the detailed level of monitoring needed to 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 do that. But not every every um, you know every industry or every farm can can afford to do that. But once you start doing it at that level, and then as these new technologies are coming on board over the next um, few years, yeah, I think we will yeah that data will be available. Um, just we'll be too late by then, though, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends whether how things are heading and in what direction. Once you start to get the feedback on how you're operating and getting that constant feedback, then we, you can identify who the best, the, those who know how to operate sustainably with low or zero carbon footprints. Others can learn from them. Um, so you get a iterative kind of learning process working between those who know how to, how to operate sustainably and those who are learning, so to speak. So. I think it could set up, uh, emerge as a network, of, a learning network um, of some sort. And I just want to remind everyone to ask, put questions on Slido if you, you haven't yet already. Um, we'll go to those soon. David, I want to come to you, and I know you asked me specifically to ask you about the East Coast Exchange, which I think is actually a good kind of pivot and segue into what we've just kind of addressed. So if you can just tell me a, a bit about that that particular mahi and especially how to, you know, kind of mobilise a market for that environmental monitoring too, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, so Toha, its core business really is is impact verification, um, confirming that things have been done um, in the environment or for climate action and, um, you know, transferring that data onto those who can use it. And the purpose of it and, you know, I sort of dodged your question about innovation earlier, but it is, it is in that innovation space. I don't want to be too mean, yeah, yeah. Not, on, not, on, not on the radio. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean the, the need for innovation is to overcome particular obstacles. And the obstacle there is that, that lack of data, that lack of ability to confirm impact and confirm that money and investment has made the difference it was supposed to make. And we, we do need to know that um, because, you know, if we're just throwing money into things and they're not driving the outcomes that we want, you know, that can be um, worse than nothing because it, it sort of gives the a, a false impression that problems are being addressed and problems are being solved when actually just money's being thrown around for no real good. And so that's part of Toha's um, mission is to create that digital infrastructure that can enable the buy side and the sell side to commit to that and to have trust that um, people are getting what they wanted out of their investments. And the East Coast Exchange it really emerged out of the crisis of um, Cyclone Gabriel. Uh, our headquarters is in Tairawhiti and, um, and Gisborne. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I can only really relay the, the story from the East Coast team out there. But, um, you know, it was really just that night, just knowing that things were going to be incredibly disrupted and unruly. Um, you know, welfare benefits were due the next day and the payment system went down and, you know, people started needing to um, break, break into dairies and so on. Um, and, you know, there was just a sense of fear and looming anarchy because people were in incredibly desperate circumstances. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, and so one of the first transactions that they did was to go to orchards uh, and, you know, the, the, the supply chains were down and so um, people couldn't get their food out of the cold stores into export markets. And isn't this insane that we've got a, a town here where we don't know if we're going to be getting food <laughs> in the coming week. And this food is rotting over here. And cannot we just create new novel supply chains which can get that food to where it's needed? And so it built on that and has um, enabled a number of other different activities from silk cleanup and um, repairing fences, um, getting water infrastructure and water around the region uh, to address those. So it was very much around emergency management. And as part of that, um, the people who made those contributions received contribution points. And then on the other side of the East Coast Exchange, we've been coordinating with funders who fund into the system and they can either um, earmark that money for a particular outcome or it can go into a general pool um, and, and, and be distributed to points holders. Um, many people who do that don't claim points. It's essentially they're donating their time or their supplies or equipment. Mm. But we realized that, you know, many people were going to be out of work and, you know, forest, forests are closed up and, you know, many forest workers in that region um, and, and others. And, you know, while that kind of voluntary community response to these events is absolutely critical and you'd never want money to get in the way of that and crowd out that natural human instinct to help one another, um, it can't be sustained forever and everybody's got rent to pay and, and so on. And... And I know from my experiences of the Canterbury earthquake, there's a exhaustion that comes with, you know, th that over time. And so this money is, is starting to go out to um, the community and, and to those who contributed. And uh, yeah, I was just hearing yesterday, you know, somebody when they saw that money in their account just broke down in tears. It was just such a relief, you know. So it is a, it's an interesting form of, of resilience innovation. And we're just trying to scale that up, looking ahead to... Um, yeah, a nature-based recovery for the region and delivering on some of those recommendations in the inquiry and especially how to get money flowing towards um, regenerative acti activities and, and restoration and so on, which currently isn't well served by the markets we have, whether they're the emissions trading scheme as a carbon market or, or our timber markets, um, which are you know the two markets which are driving land use change most predominantly in the entire Rafati. mm, -mm. I just want to follow on from that because what we saw, like you say, you know, we saw the community and we saw the people pivot, but what we didn't see pivot was the systems in which we rely on in, in terms of literally um, the, you know, access to internet, the access to our accounts, to, you know, the cash machines and all of those sorts of things. And then going off that is we had all of these forestry workers who couldn't do their work, but then we had all these, you know, we needed to we needed to build build all these temporary housing. We needed to do all these other things and fund all of that energy and that resource. But there was so much bureaucracy in in the way, and and that as you as you would have seen, that that couldn't happen as fast as it should have happened had those systems kicked into gear. So how do we bring kind of those all of the the sectors and the agencies, public, private, community, all together in order to have that more kind of um, yeah, a, a better response in those particular situations, which we're going to see more of. Yeah, I mean, this is a question of politics and, and power at the end of the day. I mean, um, you know, these institutions are big and fixed and immovable for, for reasons of integrity in ordinary times, but we're increasingly going into extraordinary times where that um, Im immobility becomes more of a of a potential hazard than a than a benefit we're going to need um, institutions that can move quickly and um, can adapt and can be driven by 
um, needs on the ground. I mean, I think that's something that the East Coast Exchange is really interesting in that people can come to that exchange with their challenges that they're facing, um, which cannot be anticipated by policymakers in, in Wellington. And, you know, if the communications lines are down, they literally don't know, like, which particular challenges that people are facing. Um, and yet, yeah, the, the, the tendency for institutions in these situations is not to is not to step back and to enable other more agile entities to flourish, but it is to declare a state of emergency and to um, and to exert, you know, sovereignty in the classic British Hobbesian sense of the word. <laughs> um, you know, that is where the kind of British tradition of the state, which informs the structure of Kawanatanga, really comes from. That mm. the state is needed to protect people's security in times of in times of challenge that's its kind of authority but that's a it's a really clumsy and um and and sort of iron-fisted um form of governance and so i think yeah this is part of the challenge is how these institutions can relinquish some power and and surrender power in situations like this especially in order for um you know local local authorities, um, including Rangatiratanga, to play a greater role. And, and that's certainly what we want to do with the East Coast Exchange as we're in discussions at the moment for that to be co-owned by um, local institutions and Māori organisations. Mm. Didier, your thoughts on that? I'm just going to grab the computer for our questions. But yeah, um, I think this is where we get into the communities know themselves best and you get this inequity which I feel is matched to the um, the wealth piece because you've got information and network inequity, and that gives you connections to all the decisions and the resources and all of that sort of thing. Now, if you have a look at, um, I think it was the Hawke's Bay, and you look who got help first, um, it was those who were probably perceived to be wealth generators who got help second, probably those perceived to be community wealth generators. So... Um, that privileged access to network and information, I think, has a big impact on what and how communities can um, respond. But if you even go further into the adaptation space, the um, dynamism that we're talking about, the ability to adapt that we talk about, that's almost like the complete opposite of what we have. Mm -hmm. And so we've just got to find that mechanism that, enables or sort of let's like you can unhitch the wagon from the structure in those times that you need and so that's almost like a transition point that hopefully as our governments can be comfortable with so that our communities can you know they know their coastline they know their rivers they know everything like there's nothing anybody else can tell them about themselves so I think we just need to try and um think about how that bias and the blind spots in decision making we can't expect people in decision making to make decisions around things they've never experienced yet they do it every day they do and so yeah. let's figure that piece out yeah some um, awesome questions coming through uh, from the, the audience. Um, Joe, I'll, I'll start with you. This, um, which I'm assuming this one's for you. How can we uh, reconcile the need for degrowth to mitigation emissions with the need to finance adaptation measures? I don't know. And, and it's really <laughs> hard, right? Like, um, yeah, ongoing question. I suppose we need to, how am I gonna, how am I gonna answer this? I guess from the position that I have, some of the key messages that we hear every day is that there's plenty of money to get this stuff done. There's plenty of international capital looking for climate solutions. It's tended to be focused on mitigation and, you know, now there is sort of an emerging focus on adaptation, but there's literally trillions of dollars of international capital looking for opportunities to invest in things that are green or sustainable. I mean, that's the promise of sustainable finance. It doesn't answer degrowth. Um, and, and to be honest with you, at the centre, we're not trying to answer that right now. I guess these things have to play out over different timescales. Um, one thing I did want to say about the how do we kind of advance adaptation mm. funding and financing, it would be really good 
to have a plan. So we don't have a plan. We have an emissions reduction plan. We have a national adaptation plan. They have funding and financing sections in them, which are very thoughtful kind of, you know, pieces of work undertaken by some of the people in this room who spend all of their time thinking about how we're going to get this done. But we actually don't have a coordinated government-led strategy that says these are the investment priorities. This is what businesses can rely on. This is the policy certainty that we're going to provide for you. And so you can invest here with some level of confidence and certainty and you can make investment decisions over a long run because we have a plan, we're going to stick to the plan. That's part of what we need and how we develop that plan in a way that you know reflects the best of all facets of society. I mean, that's tricky. But certainly that's part of the reason organisations like the Centre and there's another centre now for um, with the focus on agricultural emissions. Like there are these initiatives popping up everywhere that exist to kind of facilitate those processes. So there's cause for optimism. And I also have, can't get off of this panel without acknowledging Alex White, who's sitting in the front here, who has, you know, has pretty significant responsibilities on this matter of funding and financing from a government perspective. Um, plenty of people working on it really hard, but it's tricky and there does need to be some high level leadership and coordination. Mm -hmm. John, uh, a question here, uh, or anyone can take it, um, but John, ad adaptive, adaptive planning takes time, especially for infrastructure. How can we better articulate the value of that planning time? Well, I think the first thing is, um, I think we need to articulate the difference between grey infrastructure and blue and green infrastructure um, within our landscapes. We need to, you know, channel investment um, into the blue-green infrastructure um, and design alongside grey because uh, you know, they, work, they can work in synergy. Uh, then in terms of time frame for that, uh, we need excellent planning tools, um, you know, whole of landscape planning tools that can show us where we, where we can, uh, for example, if we're talking about ecosystem reconstruction, where we should be constructing, reconstructing or restoring ecosystems and the impact that will have on things like, say, extreme flood events or drought events, uh, where wetlands should be placed and so forth. So, yeah, long horizon planning, 100-year timeframes, um, a minimum of 100-year timeframes of thinking, uh, also factoring, of course, climate shifting uh, as different degree warming scenarios. Um, I think a lot of the information is already sitting there. A lot of the frameworks are already and tools are already sitting there. It's a matter of... Um, you know, pulling on some of the, the research uh, that so many people in this room have done, um, um, the excellent models that are already sitting out there. Yeah. Um, but we do need some sort of broader integrated uh, data approach, um, planning approach um, with those uh, sort of long-term timeframes. And I do think, um, you know, certainly iwi, Māori uh, and Māori, uh, well, all scale, uh, Marae scale too, they're, they're thinking in those sort of long-term frames and so I would be seeing how I'd be looking at how uh, that thinking can flow up, up through, up through into that, uh, into those approaches. Mm, certainly. Um, for for Didier and, and probably um, David, Cyclone Gabriel is estimated to cost New Zealand fourteen billion dollars, um, and around one billion of this is covered by insurance. Is there too much emphasis on insurance and climate adaptation? We haven't touched this, but I'm kind of keen to touch on it. <clears throat> I think insurance is a really important part of the scheme, so I wouldn't want to say there's too much. It might just be that there's not enough on everything else. You're a good answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think um, one of the one of the key things I think is the inclusiveness of insurance and the extent to which um, people are able to get it. Um, you know, there's. It, it, it's well known that Māori are less, have less coverage than um, than Pākehā and and others, and that leaves them more, um, you know, statistically more vulnerable to these events without that um, immediate recourse to, um, yeah, finance after after the event. And so I think, um, I mean, I mean, I, I I kind of defer to Belinda wherever you are here on these issues. I mean, like 
you know, insurance is incredibly complicated. I think it, it can play a role, but there's all sorts of risks of, of perverse impacts as well. Um, and so, so it's 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 really just a. Uh, it's something that w which was interesting in a discussion that me and um, Joe were in on Friday was the role that perhaps um, micro insurance might play, especially for targeting um, more vulnerable communities who don't have access to insurance. And you know, there are countries um, exploring this publicly funded micro insurance schemes that can be triggered by a particular event, such as a cyclone, and so on. And it gives a you know, no questions asked payout to those um, organizers or, or those individuals. Um, and that can make potentially a, a real big difference for people in the immediate event. Um, and it's money that could be used in a number of different ways and doesn't leave them hanging on for waiting for their um, indemnity claim to be finished, which is a, you know, emerging issue in Auckland as well as um, Tairawhiti and, and the Hawke's Bay. And certainly something I remember from the Canterbury earthquakes as well as a, as a real source of, of agony for people. So mm. to, to your point around innovation, there is potentially some opportunities there to explore innovation in the insurance sector to um, drive different sorts of outcomes. Mm. If we look also at the social resilience, so part the, part the insurance conversation for a moment, but you look at the marae everywhere that, um, you know, they become the hubs, but there's actually not a lot of support for the role and function that they play at those really critical times. that um, And so, you know, if we think about that, we start to think about this kind of funding. How does that make its way towards these places that actually care for people, um, whether they've got insurance or not, to, um, is what I'll add to that. Mm, mm, mm. Just on here, a couple more um, before we wrap up. But... Um, is there, a, is there a tension between communities knowing what they need to adapt with the finance available and the potential maladaptive, if I said that right, maladaptive outcomes, for example, seawalls, John Levy, or? Yeah, so um, specifically on the issue of data, banks and insurers and the government have information about which assets and properties are currently at higher or lower risk. And we, to some degree, as consumers and homeowners, will start to get that information. You know, it's in the, who reads the LIM report. Um, but it, there is absolutely a tension between the availability of the information, the comparability, consistency and utility of that information, and then who can get the information. And so this is a really core kind of equity conversation that needs to be had because um, this information will be used to price risk and that will have an impact on the, you know, the value of our assets. And that, uh, in, that conversation needs to include the people who are going to be exposed to the, you know, change in the value of the assets. So... There's absolutely a conversation that needs to be had and there is a, it's a fundamentally important conversation that is becoming more and more urgent every day because if you want to incentivize adaptation through different financial um, incentives, approaches, let's say, then you need to make sure that you're incentivizing the right things and that that information isn't held by a select few um, organizations or individuals who who m may have undue influence over the outcomes. Yeah. yeah, inadvertently, maybe, but nonetheless. Just saying as well, from, purely from the finance perspective, when we're looking at private capital supporting um, adaptation infrastructure, by far the biggest obstacle that's identified in all the research here and internationally is the fact that there's just a lack of bankable, investable pro projects, and that reflects the fact that there's very um, limited or no revenue flows from the adaptation assets which are created, and that's just a kind of a really challenging fact about climate adaptation and mitigation. There's lots of money-making opportunities in renewable energy and other sorts of climate technology, but in adaptation, often the primary purpose is to reduce loss and damages. It's not supposed to turn around a profitable return and so um that really does raise questions around the ex i mean i mean th that that is why public funding is so 
unavoidable in this space um, and I think why a lot of a lot more work needs to be done to find ways to get private finance in there and there are emerging conversations around blended finance and so on and using public money to catalyze that private um, investment by adjusting the risk and return expectations um, and yeah the, the, and and also something I wrote about in my report as well was that if private businesses and organizations are going to be beneficiaries of that adaptation infrastructure um, you know then rather than the the costs purely being socialized they should pay into the costs of that infrastructure through value capture mechanisms like targeted rates um, and other sorts of uh, mechanisms like that. Mm. A good follow-up question that's on here as well is how can we balance though that short-term cost and long, um, sorry, sh balance short-term cost for long to long-term benefit, for example, obviously the current investment into, um, you know, fund in, in electrified New Zealand. Who wants to take that one? It's time, eh? Yeah. Look at the, our lending horizons are very short-term like short term by my Māori standard, um, but you go into sort of other countries and they've got intergenerational lending. When you can extend the time over which you're borrowing money, the your affordability to service um, service that is much it's much better. Mm. So for some reason we're stuck on a much shorter time frame, um, and we've been in an environment where we can justify that. But perhaps now it's time to look at something else. Yeah, tar d d discount rates are crucial to that as well. I mean, the uh, um, government uses a pretty high flat 5% discount rate on everything. And even in the private sector, you know, I've talked to institutional investors about forestry and tried to get them shift their discount rates on, on forestry systems, which are more resilient than others. And that should be reflected in the discount rate, but it's not. And so, um, you know, we're going to have to have those conversations around adjusting that too, I think. Mm. There's a few questions about B Corps. <laughs> um, and as a side issue, but like there's quite a lot of it. There's, there's quite a few parts. People love the B, it seems. But um, there's one question around whether or not it aligns to B Does B Corp membership align with the Climate Leaders um, Coalition? The New Zealand Climate Leaders Coalition. I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess the kind of the big picture answer to that is B Corp is currently going through a refresh, a refresh of its standards globally. So it's a global standard, and David's on the advisory committee for that, so probably knows more about it than I do. But um, so, so it, globally, there's an emergence of a lot of different standards and regimes. There are taxonomies, there's disclosure standards like what we have here. There are kind of international sustainability frameworks that companies are using and so b corp in order to maintain its position as sort of the front of the pack is having to rethink about its standards and so i would assume i think the climate leaders Co coalition pledge is you know pledging to 1.5 degrees alignment and certainly that's what the b corp standard would be um would be looking at kind of global best practice around science yeah Science carbon. Um, in terms, sorry, just a chain going from going from B four <laughs> to the thoughts, such as uh, Ewe and Murai. Um, so Ewe and Murai have been at the forefront, obviously, of our major disasters, and this has some. This has been something that has um, been raised quite often today, um, and for good reason. And we saw, you know, COVID was actually, you know, was a was a prime example of how we saw that kick into gear um, at the scale in which it did. So what funding or priority of funding is going into them? We see kind of funding drops here and there, but it's not it's not consistent nor is it nor is it long term. Agree. <laughs> Agree, come on. <laughs> but I think on that on that <laughs> especially around, you know, the work that Toha does, um, is that how do we how do we ensure that our iwi and our marae and our hapu and our runanga are becoming self-sustainable enough that they don't have to rely on um, on the crown and on public funding in order to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, marae were the first organisation which engaged with the East Coast Exchange was a marae, and I think that just um, yeah just goes to show how engaged they are in this space and what an absolutely critical role they play for 
what we otherwise know as civil defence, and they should absolutely be um, funded properly for providing that service, um, and Manaki Tanga shouldn't be purely exploited in that regard. Um, it, you know, if the East Coast can, Exchange can, can help that, then um, that's great, but I think, um, you know, there'd be a number of different ways to, to support that um, funding, absolutely. Mm-mm. I know we've gone over time as per the program, but I thought you guys, it's only been an hour since lunch, I'm sure you guys are surviving. Um, <laughs> but I, I, in order to wrap us up, I do want to come to each of the panellists um, to ask, and this is what I did with the previous panel around, you know, what do you want people to take away from this, from today, from your corridor, or potentially a particular project or area you personally want to see um, be funded or t- to see happen um, in order to address what we what we are um, talking about today. I will start with you, David. <laughs> I think um, something that's been on my mind is just um, expressing humility in regards to the uncertainty that's ahead. I think... Um, you know, we do keep coming back to data and data as though it might be, um, it might fill that gap that uncertainty leaves us with, but that's just never going to happen. The kinds of changes which are ahead are so complex and, you know, incredibly complex systems interconnecting and influencing one another. There's just, um, there's a huge amount of uncertainty and, um, you know, a lot of our conversation today has been about the costs and so on. Um, you know, there's a danger in presenting too much certainty in regards to that. And I think, um, you know, that, that recent fiscal assessment by Treasury, I think that was, you know, perhaps its its biggest fault was that it presented, um, you know, numbers as if there, there was some certainty around the future costs. And I just don't think that that's true at all. And that speaks as somebody who was contributing to some of the, you know, research which underpinned that. I mean, yeah. I think, and and maybe it's the scientists' fault as well, and that um, you know more should be done to communicate that uncertainty to policymakers so that they don't come away thinking that there are clear answers in this. Yeah. Okay, idea. Um, I think one of the first things we we try to innovate our way out of the problems that we've created using the same set of thinking that created the problem in the first place. So we keep going around in a bit of a vortex. Yeah. Um, I think what I'd like to pose to us is a question um, more to sort of catalyse thinking than anything else, and that was if Aotearoa um, lost 90%, if, it, if Aotearoa could only produce enough food for our own consumption and the rest couldn't go anywhere else, what would our economy look like if we didn't rely on Papatuanuku? And if we can do that, we might stop trying to figure out the things around the bottom and start trying to figure out what's up here. Mm. Kilda. John, I think um, there's a, for me, the takeaway is there's a lot of solutions out there. Um, people operating in different areas, different sectors, um, different examples and communities, different examples and government, regional councils and ministries of incredible things happening. I think the solutions are already sitting there in the most, for, for the most case. It's a matter of um, those uh, pinpointing where those are and letting them lead. And I think networks of those groups is what will create the new institutions for a new, a new way of operating. So I think that would be um, my takeaway. Um, and in terms of uh, something I would like to see happen, that would probably be the what I was referring to before about the the ability to plan across the country on a on a whole of landscape scale of how we adapt and change. Yeah, I guess um, it's really important to pull together. So obviously we need sort of bipartisan support for you know and and some certainty around the general direction of travel. But I also think um, adaptation versus mitigation is a is a you know it's a, an unhelpful kind of framing um bread and butter versus climate change inflation versus climate action all those things like it's a it's a both and on on all counts and i just think there's this sort of um these sort of corrosive narratives that that take hold and they just 
and well, they corrode, I guess. So my final thought would be now is absolutely a time to um, to respond in a considered way and to try to like create cohesion, pull together and try to all move, you know, with each other and in the same direction. Don't know what that direction is because we have not yet defined what is sustainable or what is adaptation or what is resilience, but we're just heading that direction. <laughs> I did oh I didn't ask you your guys' trees. So you guys weren't here for the morning, eh? So you had to introduce yourself. Um, so just to, to think, wrap us up and get people to, um, you know, connect with their trees as we're all about Tani today. Um, David, what was your tree and why? Apurere. Um, I've got a reforestation project with Ngāti Whātu Arake up, up, yeah. um, up at Orake. And uh, yeah, we, we planted the trees in 2019, 2020, and they, the Apurere had the best survival rates through the droughts. And um they also bring in the birds, which get the natural regeneration processes going. It's very on brand. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Lydia, if you were the the part I was, if you were a tree, what tree would you be and why? Did it have to be a native? Oh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I'll totally nectarine because I love nectarines. <laughs> so practical, love it. John, what was your... Um, well, I live near Rickerton Bush in Otatai Christchurch, which is like the last little remnant area of forest that used to exist all across the plains. And uh, they've got some old old stand kaifetia there, so that would be mine. Oh, beautiful. Ja. I mean, I think I've watched my mother mow her lawns for thousands and thousands of hours so I'm not going to be a tree I'm going to be some flax <laughs> and I'm going to just be like a replanted lawn that doesn't need mowing anymore that would be my, that was in yeah that will be the that the woman's answers are really practical <laughs> and our tiny we're very deep and very on brand with tiny so kawaii kawaii if we could please give um, a round of applause to our amazing speakers Gilda, thank you so much, Charles. You guys, if you just can't go, Phil's got something for you there. Kilda. Kopapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge: Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott Murray, and Sally Owen. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challenge's Pautikanga Ruia Apirahama and his brother Rania, and comes from the album Fare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. To all of those who gave us their time and expertise for this series.